0: In the construction business and tired of dealing with the indifference of big corporate suppliers, Quality Supply and Tool on South Harding Street understands. For over 25 years, owner Kevin Ane has had a different approach.
1: We at
2: Quality Supply and Tool take pride in being a locally owned family business, committed to service. And every customer's needs are different, and we truly believe in shaping our business to our customers' needs. That's what separates us from
0: the competition. That's Quality Supply and Tool with additional locations in Bloomington, Jeffersonville, and Lafayette to serve Hoosiers better. Partner with Quality Supply and Tool and think outside the box, store
1: only the best. Run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you
3: feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Poit and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by
4: for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth.
0: Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box store on 935 and 1075 the Fan. Hey, good evening to you. My name is Jay Query. Mike Thompson here as well. This is Beyond the Bricks. On 935-1075 the Fan, our look back at the names, the stories, the personalities. At the Indianapolis Motor Speedway beyond the bricks themselves and beyond the statistics if you will and this show Mike is one that we have done before in some variation and by that I mean this and I think I've said this before on this program matter of fact I'm sure I said it a couple of weeks ago but anniversary is an odd word to me because typically I think when people think of an anniversary. It means the mark of something of which it is more often than not a word of celebration. You celebrate the anniversary of a wedding. You celebrate the anniversary of when you got your job, etc. And I'm always, I'm not going to say uncomfortable, but just kind of incredulous as to whether or not to use the word anniversary. We don't have a word in the American lexicon necessarily. That says it's a day in which we mark something that is somber. And there are two ways to look at racing fatalities one is to look at them in a somber fashion, and the other is to champion those people whose lives were lost in pursuit of a racing dream. And to begin tonight's show, I will say that this is an anniversary, for lack of a better phrase, but it's an anniversary of the time in which I think about Jovi Marcello, who in 1992. Was fatally injured at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in a practice. Jovi Marcello, who had been a lights champion, matter of fact, he uh, had won races over Jimmy Vassar in lights, and was a you know a very talented up and coming driver. When he was fatally injured on May fifteenth of nineteen ninety two, I think I told the story a year ago that I was at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway probably two years ago in the off season. And just happened to run into Jovi Marcello's widow, Irene, and she was with their son, who she was, uh, I believe, either pregnant with or had just been born. I believe she was still pregnant when Jovi Marcello lost his life. But they are wonderful people. They live in British Columbia. Um, I've stayed in touch with both of them. Very kind people, and they wanted to come back to see the racetrack that had lured Jovi Marcello to the ultimate racing dream. And I always respected that. That was the 10th mark, May 15th of 1992, when Jovi Marcello was fatally injured, of a day in which many people remember. May 15th of 1982, qualifying at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the tragic passing of Gordon Smiley. So this is a day that I think a lot of people, if they don't remember the date numerically, they are certainly aware of events that have taken place at IMS on this day.
5: Yeah, and it's an important day. It, it is an anniversary in my mind because it's my indie anniversary today. It's the anniversary of my first day at the Speedway, which was five fifteen of 82, and it was the first day. I ever got to go to IMS after waiting since I was a little, little kid. I finally got to go to IMS on that day. And, and tragically, uh, one of the first cars I ever saw on the track was Gordon Smiley. And, uh, you know, obviously, sadly, he lost his life that day.
0: Gordon Smiley had run the race. We've talked about him before. i mean, an accomplished road racer and came to Indianapolis. And I think kind of had this dichotomy about him of the fact that he had a big smile and a quick wit, but also was pretty sure of himself quite frankly because of his road racing background and at times i think was received in different ways by his competitors i think there are those that kind of admired the the moxie but i think there were also certainly those that thought he was uh, a little too cocky and so as a result of that he was fairly polarizing within the paddock itself but again as i had mentioned He raced at Indianapolis twice before coming back in 1982. In 1980, Gordon Smiley started in the 20th position and ran the race, finished in 25th. He turned 47 laps before a turbocharger took him out of the race. Then in 1981, it was a crash in turn number four after a solid start. Started in the 8th position, finished 13th, did Gordon Smiley. Then came 1982, and... Mike, the reality is that I have talked to plenty of people over the years that were there in the paddock, in the garage area, when Gordon Smiley in 1982 attempted to qualify. And I, I think the reality is that he was seeing guys like Rick Mears. You know, he was seeing guys that were to some extent from an age standpoint his contemporaries, you know, Kevin Cogan that were going out and setting speed records and Gordon Smiley I think some drivers had the ultimate pursuit of winning at Indianapolis in that particular race in 1982 for Gordon Smiley I think he had the ultimate pursuit after having switched teams of trying to cement himself as a legitimate qualifier up towards the front when he suffered his accident in turn number three but that accident where Gordon Smiley's life came to an end on May 15th of 1982, came within the same week, later in the week, um, obviously, than when he had done an interview. And I believe, Mike, we've played different audio from this, but this is with Kevin Calabro, brother of Dave Calabro, on a show back then that was known as Talk of Gasoline Alley on WIBC, correct?
5: That is correct. Uh, He was on the show with Kevin Calabro. Now, the the format back then was a little different. Donald would take... Uh, calls and do trivia in the first hour of the show. And in the second hour in May, typically Kevin Calabro would have a guest, a driver guest, either a contemporary driver who was trying to make the race or in the race, or a, a legend of the time, a Duke Nalen or a Joey Chitwood type guest. So the the format was a little different uh, than we know the talk of gasoline alley ended up being later uh, with Donald just taking questions uh, of, uh, you, know, histal- you know, nostalgic nature, historic nature, things like that.
0: So here is Gordon Smiley with Kevin Calabro in May of 1982. Uh, and luck, I guess, is a lot of this business,
6: isn't it? Oh, you bet. A skill, you obviously. Bet. You're a skilled athlete. But uh, luck is a part of everything, I think, and if you excel. Uh, your first year here, you were ninth fastest and you mm-hmm. started 20th. Mm-hmm. And in your second year last year. Talk about last year. What what
7: Well, again, like you say, the the good luck on my side has been that I have never driven an Indy car for what wasn't a good team, and I've been here the two previous times with the Patrick team, last year with Mario and Gordy, and the year before with uh, Gordy and Tom Bagley, and I've just had tremendous help Mm in Indianapolis, and that's helped me a bunch, because this year I'm just completely relaxed and very comfortable from the first time I went on the track, and... uh, So I've been very lucky from that standpoint. My results, however, have been exactly the opposite. We've just had diabolical luck, and and it's really hurt us when we've run right up in front in both races. Let a uh, lap last year? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, I guess there's other things besides luck involved, too, sure. but uh, of I put down a lot of it to luck. Richard Fetty said a long time ago, I'd much rather be lucky than good, and well, I sure agree with that.
6: <laughs> you
7: started oval racing, uh, I guess, officially in your first big event, 1980, Ontario. Mm-hmm. How did that all happen? Well, it uh, was kind of a strange uh, run of circumstances. In 79, I drove in the Aurora Formula 1 series in Europe for John Surtees. Okay, now, now let's stop right there aurora formula one now what is that all about well basically that series was designed the concept was a a training ground for grand prix drivers for potential Mm -hmm. world championship grand prix drivers and there's a mistaken uh, thing out that it was for year old grand prix cars and that's just not true the the certes team that i drove for was using their current latest state-of-the-art equipment we used cowsworth engines just exactly the same as the grand prix teams use so other than the tires which we had a specification tire which we called wooden extremely hard tires, and they were about three seconds slower than a Grand Prix tire in back-to-back tests. Hmm. Uh, the cars were identical, so it's an excellent training ground for an up-and-coming driver in a Formula One type car. And it was based wholly in Europe. We did the 14 race series during the year. And it was a, just a, a good preview to what Formula 1 or Grand Prix style racing is without the expense of being on the world championship circuit. Now, past the interruption, we move on from there. Where do you go? Okay, well I drove for John Surtees and he per, previously and years ago had driven for George Bignati, And the two of them made a connection and that led me to the Patrick team who George was with at that time. And uh, Mr. Patrick gave me an opportunity to drive at Ontario in the 200 prior to Indy that year. And I started 14th and finished sixth, and it was a good steady run. It wasn't spectacular by any means, but brought the car home and that pleased everybody. And he, Mr. Patrick, agreed to give me a chance to drive the third car at Indy as long as both Gordy and Tom got in the show. So I sat and waited until the second week, and uh, on Tuesday, the second week was my first time on the track, and uh, Thursday we had fast time of the day, and
6: Saturday we qualified at ninth fastest, eighth fastest. It's interesting the way the car owners go through the process of finding the drivers. I would like to talk to a car owner and find out what the prerequisites are, and what, what they're thinking about I was talking to Kevin Coogan uh, just briefly this afternoon, and ask him how he got the ride, mm-hmm. and it was basically the same story. Penske had heard about him, had recognized the fact that, you know, he had turned in a couple of strong races, including last May, and bang it happened. Yeah,
7: it's really a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, Yeah. it is again. And, and, you know, I'm sure not minimizing Kevin or Rick or whatever anybody else has done. If you need to be in the right place at the right time and you need to stay in front of the public all the time when you're coming up in your racing career. Exactly.
0: Gordon Smiley again in 1982. And, you know, you heard him there. I, I think that looking at those speed records, Mike, and I understand it. But Gordon Smiley was um, in the ultimate pursuit and took his car, probably pushed it to the level that I think others had told him, like, hey, just put it in the show. But you could see, I mean, the, the, the under I understand based on precedent why he probably wanted to make an emphatic statement.
5: Oh, I agree. Um, now, that interview was done on the 10th of May. Uh, and he was very optimistic. If you listen to the entire interview with Kevin Clare, where he's very optimistic about the car, he's very upbeat in the whole interview. I have another interview, a very a short snippet of an interview he did the night before he passed away. And his and his mood is totally different. He's very downcast. He's very dour. He's very upset about what the car is doing. And you can tell that he's very downcast. And I, in my personal opinion is, uh, you know, having talked to some people and, and talked to... Uh, Different folks, you know, he really liked Tom Sneva. He really thought that Tom Sneva, you know, in qualifying was the man. And that he if he emulated Tom Sneva, that you could basically will a car to a certain speed. And, you know, I think it's a a case of of trying to wring something out of that car that it really wasn't capable of. Um, you, you know, trying to will it to a certain speed, where whereas what you just said, instead of just putting it in the show and then working on it and continuing to get it better for race day. Uh, trying to get something out of that car that it it may not have been capable of.
0: 1982 was the year that a rookie came to Indianapolis that when it comes to uh, tying together two things that Gordon Smiley was talking about and unfortunately the accident of Gordon Smiley, sometimes luck does come into play. And when your car gets squirrely, there are those that have had luck in terms of all of a sudden realizing by the time they realize their car is spinning, they look up and they think, Holy cow, I'm going in the right direction. Danny Sullivan has made no bones about the fact that that's exactly what he felt essentially in 1985 in his famous spin to win. When he did a complete 180 in turn number two and then realized, wait a minute, I'm still going in the right direction and went on to win the Indianapolis 500 mile race. But he was a rookie in 1982 was Danny Sullivan. As a matter of fact, Danny Sullivan's driving record outside, at least at Indianapolis, outside of that year he won the 500, has a couple of, of real things that pop out at you in the terms of the fact that he only completed 200 laps once. That was the year he won it. In 1982, he was a rookie. And in 1982, he was interviewed. Here's how it sounds.
6: Tonight our guest is Danny Sullivan for the half hour and then Roger Mears will be with us at 7.30 and Danny was just telling us about being up in Toronto, Canada yesterday and doing 61 of these suckers. So uh, (laughs) thanks for giving us the half hour, Danny. We appreciate that. Oh, pleasure. They they must ask you every, like you say, every conceivable question known to man about auto racing and some that you probably don't have answers for.
1: Yeah, some of them are good, but some of them are a little bit uh, crazy. And you know, when some girl asks you, well, what's it like every time you approach a corner and it's a life or death situation <laughs> you know Ooh. Uh, you have to sort of educate him politely without, yeah you know it's not quite that bad you've <laughs> got quite a following in Canada because of the can-am huh that's right and the uh, Canadians seem to be uh, like here in Indianapolis are real ardent fans and they mm. follow it and I've raced up in at uh, Mossport uh, this will be my fourth time so it, uh, you get a little following.
6: And you're racing for whom again?
1: Paul Newman and Budweiser.
6: Hot dog. Is he a tough boss to work for?
1: No, he's actually one of the best I've ever worked for because he's a super nice guy. He's an enthusiast first. He's real down to earth and uh, just wants to do well and understands all the problems because he races himself, which uh, really helps. And uh, he and I were friends first and now employer and employee. How
6: would you rate him as a race driver?
1: Well, the races I've seen him do in the Dotson are fantastic. The first one this year, he won from from last uh, place because they couldn't start the car on the grid. And uh, the second one with no brakes, he finished second. You know, so outstanding. He's good, and and uh, you know, he finished second at Le Mans. He's won the national championship, and some of those guys aren't slouches that yeah. he's racing against. Now,
6: Danny, you grew up in Louisville, or is it Louisville? It's uh, Louisville.
1: <laughs> <laughs> for, for everybody
6: from there or outside. No, of. just teasing you. But uh, did you start your racing there, or when, when did you start? I know you went to the University of Kentucky. Did you start there? Or?
1: No, I was actually uh, bumming around in New York working as a oh, waiter, and uh, a friend of the family came and was trying to get me on track and find out what I was going to do with my life other than yeah. be a waiter and he was connected in racing so I said well I'd like to try my hand at that just as a whim it was a mm-hmm. change of pace and uh, I finally talked him into helping me and uh, sent me to a driving school in Europe. At the time was the best one and he was associated with Jackie Stewart and Jackie suggested this. Went over there and fell in love with it and they said you've got talent you ought to stick around. So uh, I stayed. The big time. Yeah, it right. was. And you started off in formula over there? Formula Ford. Mm-hmm. And then did Formula 3 and Formula 2. These are all small bore formulas. They they look like an Indy car but all small scale. Uh-huh. And uh, stayed there and then had an offer to come back here to the states to race uh, Formula Atlantic and Mini Indy or the Super V Championship and that fell through. The Atlantic went off and so I raced here and then Did some long-distance racing and then got involved with Garvin Brown in the Can-Am and did Atlantic and NASCAR and now with Paul Newman and Budweiser here and Garvin Brown and the Forsyth uh, brothers from Chicago were here at Indy.
6: Outstanding, just on a whim is the way it all began. That's right. Wow, from a New York waiter to (laughs) an Indy car racer.
0: There was a lot made when he won the race in 1985 about Danny Sullivan having been a waiter at one time in New York City. And that rookie year that he had in 1982, Danny Sullivan actually had started the race in the 13th position. He finished one spot lower. Another driver in that race in 1982 that did the opposite of that, brought the car home one place higher than where he finished, was Tony Bettenhausen. Tony Bettenhausen, Mike, from one of the great racing families, is the next that we'll feature here.
5: That's right, Tony Lee Bettenhausen, uh, one of the nicest guys. I, I have a, a very strong memory of my. He was at the uh, the old Flag Room. I don't know if you remember the Flag sure. Room that used to be there at the uh, at the mo- the Speedway Motel. And my aunt and uncle happened to be at the Flag Room one time, and they met him in the Flag Room, uh, the bar area, and they uh, said, "Oh, you know." Our nephew would love to talk to you. And they actually called me <laughs> real quick. And he actually got on the phone and, you know, was like, you know, hey, this is Toto. And I'm thinking, who's Toto? You know, and 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 then, uh, you know, I'm like, a, you know, a kid, I'm like 12 years old or whatever at the time and and he was he couldn't have been nicer and he was like oh thanks for being a fan and he signed a you know like a brochure for for me and i still have it you know and and my aunt and uncle brought it home for me and he he just couldn't have been nicer just to to call and say hello for a minute you know just because he knew that that would make me happy as a young race fan and and he was always very very pleasant very very pleasant gentleman
0: of course, the son of the great racer Tony Bettenhausen, the brother of Gary Bettenhausen, and I would assume this sound also is from 1982. Correct, Mike? That is correct. Uh,
5: this is, is from 1982. Another uh, quick interview with Kevin Calabro, and he's he's actually talking about uh, Tony Bettenhausen, Tony Lee Bettenhausen's famous father, uh, Melvin Tony Bettenhausen.
6: What was that like coming up? Uh, you know, with a father that obviously was at the top of the class, was there some pressure for, for young Tony to, to produce or?
4: Well, not, not really. I think there was, it was harder on Gary and Merle than it was mm-hmm. myself because I was nine when my dad uh, was killed here at Indianapolis and uh, you know I, I think it wouldn't have been too long before I'd have had to, had yeah. to straighten up and, and do things right, but uh, uh, he was a perfectionist and, and he wanted things done his way and uh, I think Gary's very much like that too with his voice.
6: When, the, when there is a death in racing, Tony, uh, in particular in the family, uh, do you sometimes look back and, like you say, you're at the age of nine, but at that age, uh, were there some people saying, uh, particularly in the family, saying, you know, let's let's not have you get into racing? What Was was there influence in the family for you not to go into racing, or h- how was that handled when you were that young?
4: Well, my mother wasn't uh, the most excited person in the world when, yeah. when I uh, even started racing go-karts when I was 15, 16 years old, but... Uh, uh, You know, there's something that uh, I think my father looked at at life like uh, if he uh, only lived to be 45 years old, he lived to be 44. I don't know whether he ever put an age on it, but uh, if you're happy doing what you want to do, I think you uh, fulfill your life more so than you do if you live to be 80 or 90 and you're unhappy every day when you get up and go to work. Just live it Well, you've got it. Very
6: good.
0: That is, sadly, the late Tony Benthausen with Kevin Calabro from 1982, Gary Bettenhausen, his one brother that was referenced there, uh, also now no longer with us. But Merle Bettenhausen, not only uh, still around, but also um, always fun to talk to, whether you run into him at the Speedway or perhaps at one of the dining areas around Indianapolis. Merle Bettenhausen, always, just like you had mentioned with Tony, Mike, willing to stop, chat, and have a good laugh. When we come back, we will continue to feature some of those names, including a few that we've already mentioned when we take a look back at some of the drivers of the 80s here on Beyond the Bricks. The night before the 500, live under the stars this Saturday night
5: 7.30 at the Sports Complex downtown. It's the fabulous Oak Ridge Boys in concert. The Oak Ridge Boys and Doug Hagen live in person outdoors under the stars. Tickets now on sale at Ross and Babcock downtown and in Indianapolis Airs locations. Prices are 750, dollars dollars and $9.50. Get your $1 off discount coupons now at Guarantee Auto Stores. Don't miss this one. Brought to you by the Promotion Company.
0: I can't believe they got nine fifty for the Oakridge Boys. Can't believe the the outrageous ticket prices to go down to the uh, sports complex, which is the Indianapolis Tennis Tennis Center. The old clay courts is where that was. Fabulous uh, audio there from nineteen eighty one. The Oakridge Boys in concert in Indianapolis. That nineteen eighty one race, by the way, featured a rookie in it by the name of Kevin Cogan who in that race finished fourth, started in 12th, ran 197 laps, and suddenly Kevin Cogan was on the map. Beyond the Bricks here, Jake Quarry along with Mike Thompson, Sam Fritz, Eddie Garrison helping us out behind the scenes. And speaking of Kevin Kogan, I think we all know what happened with Kevin Cogan at the outset of that 1982 Indianapolis 500. Coogan as he became known because A.J. Foyt exclaimed so demonstratively about his displeasure of Kevin Cogan. Mario Andretti saying, and I'm paraphrasing, this is what happens when you have a children doing an adult's job or a man's job in terms of racing. Kevin Cogan, in his second year was involved in an accident at the outset of the race in 1982 that would forever mar him even when he had the opportunity to win the race just four years later in 1986, leading on the final restart when Bobby Rahal passed him. I think, Mike, it's almost unfair because Kevin Cogan was a darn good race car driver and a fast race car driver and yet i think those two things are the things for which most people simply remember him
5: oh that's 100 percent accurate and unfortunately uh, you know he's not been back because of the way he you know he's been treated over the years by by fans um, i think you and i have had this conversation of if he has the accident with you know don whittington and somebody else uh you know instead of a.j Foyt and Mario Andretti, then maybe none of this would be still talked about the way it is. But because it was a Mario and AJ Foyt involved, um, you know, it, it became this gigantic thing that is still talked about to this day. And and it's just sad because Kevin is such a nice person; he's always been so pleasant. Um, but I mean, I think he's really always. I just a personal opinion. I think he's always just been, you know, hurt by the way he's been treated. Um, you know, over the years by by people because of that accident.
0: Back in 1982, Kevin Kogan was on WIBC talking about the Indianapolis 500.
3: Indianapolis is a tough place to feel comfortable, and that's my biggest problem. I want to go out there and try to... uh, feel as comfortable as I can with uh, the setup and, and also I'd like to be able to try to get a compromise race set too but basically I think there's a lot of things that we can improve on and it just takes lap times qualifying is Saturday do you feel comfortable in your own mind yet knowing that you have a very realistic chance to sit on the pole for the 82 race well I'm I really don't like to think about it at all I, I, I think the best thing is just to like I said before we work with the car and we take it as it comes and if whatever the next step is that's what we do and uh, we just go from there Uh, if I look at any specific times you just just find yourself uh, uh, you know looking it's it's like almost like dreaming really because you might not be able to do it the most important thing is just to concentrate on the chassis and that's where all our times are there's no such thing as uh, dialing the engine and the engine is as fast as it's going to be and all of our uh, all of our time is being picked up in the corners I just saw a TV shot of my corner of my lap that quick lap and I couldn't believe how fast it looked like it was going through the corners Gary Looking Uh, at it? A little bit. Yeah. Well, I saw Danny Sullivan's crash just before it, so that scared me more. (laughs)
0: 1982, Kevin Kogan, by the way, and uh, Bob Lamy, who was there with him. Of course, Bob Lamy later, the voice of the Indianapolis Colts. That 1982 race was the second for Kevin Cogan, as we talked about, it was the first for Danny Sullivan and it was the final race for one of the real colorful characters. I think when you talk about drivers that were just the hard charging type that fans love to stand up and pump their fists. And I'm talking about Tom Bigelow when he would go by.
5: Yeah. Tom Bigelow is a great guy. First of all, in general, um, I don't know if you know, but uh, he still to this day, writes a little mouse when he signs an autograph he draws a little mouse and he's been doing that for decades and so uh you know just a great great guy in general uh fabulous you know sprint car driver sprint car champion uh you just an all-around really good guy
0: tom bigelow started in indianapolis in 1974 and again as you talked about racing and sprint cars he raced in midgets basically If there was something that could be raced, the guy from Whitewater, Wisconsin, was going to be racing it. And Tom Bigelow, um, again, making his last start in Indianapolis in 1982. He would start that race in the 31st position. He would finish in the 18th position. He also was able to sit down and really offer some kind of unique insight about the 1982 race, which again would be his final run at Indianapolis but really good insight on, you know, how it used to be and, and just how things were back 41 years ago. Uh, when I
8: went out for a qualifying attempt in the Genesee beer car, we lost the motor, and with that, Bill Hall come over and asked me if I would take their car out just for some shakedown runs and uh, get it four laps over 177 so we could they could get the final sticker on it. So I asked Mr. Hammond if I could do that, and he said yes to go ahead and do it. I run the, the four laps. Well, it, we took it out, it, I think it was about one thirty. run a couple laps and had a head gasket blown. So we went, they went back in, fixed that. We're out on the track again at quarter to six. I run four more laps. The first one was, a well, the first one was just warm up. The next one was 182, then 185, then 187. And uh, the track closed in. Uh, I was really amazed how easy it was to do it. To, to find the difference between the two cars. And this is mainly why I had wanted to do it, was just to get in and, and find out the difference mm-hmm. between the semi-ground effects and the full-ground effects of the Eagle. And uh, it really amazed me. And then Sunday morning, well, Saturday night, we had a meeting and they asked me if I would drive it. And uh, I talked to Mr. Hammond and no decision was made. It uh, was just left kind of hanging. They said we'd have to know in the morning by 7.30, so uh, Saturday night wasn't a very good night for me. I didn't uh, didn't really know what to do. We're b- bouncing from one side to the other, you know. And any little thing woke me up. But I uh, I got up that next morning and still didn't really know. When I got out of the motor home, I just said, Well, I have uh, maybe 400 feet here to make up my mind, and <laughs> it it wasn't an easy decision because uh, Galen Fox and the crew there and, and Dick Hammond, the whole Genesee Bear people, been super, but. I just knew that I, I had just about all I could get out of the, the 56 car and that the Eagle in just those few laps was running that fast and the motor was sour. So I really felt that, you know, with some chassis changes and all of the people that had been coming over and saying that they'd come and help, uh, that the car was capable of doing it. And then watching Chandler and Firestone run that fast, why, yeah. you knew the car could do it. So I just decided that if I was going to make the race this year and the way the speeds were looking, that it was going to take a – well, I figured the 93 was safe with Bill Olsip, but I knew it was going to take that or just a little more to get in it. So I just uh, had to make up my mind, and that was my choice.
0: You know what's really interesting, Mike, about Tom Bigelow? I don't know that anybody, when they would look back on drivers of the 1980s, you know, when I was a kid and I would go to the race, 1982, I would have been 10 years old, for example, Uh, actually nine and a half before that um, in in the 82 race, I would have turned 10 later. But regardless, I would see names of drivers that would be starting in the eighth, ninth, 10th row year in and year out. And as a kid would probably naturally do, I would kind of snicker to myself because I would think, wow, that that guy's, you know, he's not going to win the race. And now I, I, I realize, as I have for years, but You have to have an appreciation for the fact of just how darn hard it was to qualify for Indy in its own right in 1982, 83, 84. The number of drivers and the versatility of skill set it took to compete in the Indianapolis 500, just making the field, Mike, was a sign right there that you were amongst the best of your region or in the country on the tracks from which you had run become before coming to Indy and then a guy like Tom Bigelow you look at and he never dropped out of a race because of something of his own fault sure there were incidents where he had a gearbox go out or an engine failure or something like that but to be able to be running or Getting the most out of the car that you could before it expired and you would not going out by contact after, uh, you know, a number of races is pretty darn impressive.
5: Absolutely. And when I I think about what I thought you were going in this one direction at first with your comment, when I looked at the lineups, you know, you'd wonder about different guys you'd see and you'd want to learn more about them. And I was thinking about this the other day because I watched the beginning of the 82 race on uh, the ABC, you know, the old. ABC broadcast of the 82 race, and they're going through the lineup and they're saying all these nice things about different people or or trying to find human interest things. You know, Michael Chandler is the son of the publisher of the L.A. Times or, you know, Chet Phillip is the first bearded driver in 50 years or, you know, I mean, they're they're saying all these different things about people literally for Tom Bigelow. They said Tom Bigelow is a veteran from Winchester, Indiana. That's that's all they say about him. I mean, the guy was, you know, USAC Sprint Car Champion, you know, you know, he won all these races in USAC. And the best thing you can say, he's from Winchester, Indiana. Yeah, I mean, 100
0: 100 career starts in USAC, right? I mean, racing for a decade and a half finishing, you know, top 39, top 10 finishes. I mean, it's pretty darn decorated.
5: Yeah, absolutely, and so. But I, I really thought that soundbite we played with Tom Bigelow was interesting, just to talk about how it used to be back in those days. You know, making that tough decision of switching rides. You know, he felt, you know, the Genesee beer wagon was something he had driven before, and he he felt a real, you know, kinship with the Hammonds, and he didn't want to didn't want to leave that ride. But this other this eagle, you know, he got it up to speed so quickly, and and then he was able to put it in the show, and it was a tough decision for him. And you know, I I really, you know. I, I I miss those days. I miss those days when people would be, you know, switching cars and there was all that drama at the last minute. I mean, I'd love to be seeing, you know, Nick Yeoman run up and down the the pit lane, you know, watching people get into different cars in, in this era. I think that would be really interesting. Uh, because I, that was my favorite i used to like i'll be honest i used to like bump day more than pole day oh i think For the, the drama uh, yeah the my, drama
0: the drama of bump day has is. Uh, i mean i think that was as responsible uh, you know on the weekends of wide world of sports of drawing people into indianapolis as much as anything just to you know the because that was the ultimate exhibition of the stress that went into it for drivers. And I I do think that for a long time there, and I'm not saying this isn't still the case, but for a long time, if you were a race fan and you were watching races on Friday night in Spokane, or you were watching races on Saturday nights in Boise, or in, you know, wherever it might be, in Winchester, in you know, throughout Wisconsin, whatever driver was dominating your region, it was like the NCAA tournament today. If your team or your driver didn't make it in, then you rooted for the one that was representing the 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 racetrack where your driver does drive, and so that's who you're rooting for, and and so. To see those drivers, the Dennis Firestones, the Tom Bigelows, doing what they have to do at the 11th hour to secure themselves just a chance to get in. Man, that was high drama, white-knuckle stuff, and that's what kept people coming back to see what was taking place at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Speaking of coming back, we're going to do exactly that one more time on Beyond the Bricks. This is Beyond the Bricks. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.
2: I'm Pete Halsmer. I'll be driving for Colonial Bread in the Indy 500 time trials. And thanks to Colonial's Indy 500 sweepstakes, you could be driving a new gold Camaro or win free groceries or even become an honorary member of my pit crew. For sweepstakes rules and other prizes just look for specially marked loaves of colonial bread and at the race look for me in the colonial Huber chevrolet special hey who knows with a little luck we might both win at any no purchase necessary
0: now my question for you is this would you have taken the free groceries the honorary pit crew opportunity or the gold camaro
5: Ooh, that's a tough one. Probably the gold Camaro at that point. Well, I don't know. I was 12, so I wouldn't have done me any good. So I probably would have taken the honorary pick crew at that point.
0: Yeah, the groceries wouldn't have done you any good either. Like, sitting over the Twinkies, just as many yeah. as I can get, right? Um, yeah. By the way, Load Pete Halsmer. With the colonial bread. What, yeah, that's right. Pete Alsmer is one of the real, I think one of the real heroes when you talk about Uh, the history of the Indianapolis 500 he is not one that by any stretch of the imagination when you look at his driving record jumps out at you as overly impressive you heard him there on that advertisement you know hey maybe we'll both be lucky this year in 1982 he was running his second Indianapolis 500 he started 25th he finished seven spots lower in the 32nd position a year earlier in his rookie year of 1981 he had started 24th and finished in the exact same spot But, and we've talked on this program about George Souders, the 1927 winner of the race, who was a native of the Lafayette area and attended Purdue. That's the same path, as a matter of fact, of Pete Halsmer, who graduated from Purdue, was born in 1944 in Lafayette. And in addition to that, and I think this is the one thing about him that Mike is with all of the driving accomplishments with the advertisements with hoping that folks might get lucky to help win the indy 500 with him um you know he was also a helicopter pilot that served in vietnam so to me the fact that that he served in vietnam as a helicopter pilot uh, that only is you know not only is impressive but it's heroic and commendable
5: Absolutely. Um, You know, he was very proud of his service and rightfully so. And, you know, as you said, he graduated from Purdue with, uh, you know, two different degrees and, you know, very, very impressive person. And one of the nicest people you ever want to meet. I mean, and an accomplished race car driver. I mean, this isn't somebody who is, you know driving around at the back i mean he you know he finished second at cleveland one year in, in the grand prix cleveland so i mean this is you know he won races in in IMSA, the gto series and, the, and he was the gto champion so i mean this is a very accomplished race car driver
0: yeah he's won of the 24 hours of daytona you know in in different classes so certainly very accomplished and in 1982 his second of two years at the indianapolis motor speedway and he did what a lot of guys did back then when they would run the race he sat down with kevin calabro
6: Pete, you're very technically oriented, and I know your background, but why not, just for the benefit of the listeners, why don't you uh, delve into your background? Uh, did it all get started at Purdue, or did you have an earlier interest in well, I think
2: When I grew up in Lafayette, my father and his two brothers have a small private airport there in Lafayette, and I grew up kind of helping my dad build experimental airplanes. And so I did a lot of rivet, rivet bucking and sheet metal work. <laughs> and uh, so I learned a lot there working at the airport and, and working on airplanes and, and that was a good education. And and then uh, going through high school and, and through college at Purdue, um, I went through the aviation electronics school, technical school at Purdue and graduated in the industrial education school. And I, did some rebuilding of sports cars and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. helping put myself through school. And, and I enjoyed that. And I've always enjoyed sports, competitive things, and I've enjoyed the technical side of things too. And so racing was kind of a natural combination of those things. And uh, getting involved in racing and and working with some good people on the West Coast when I was in amateur racing and doing my own suspension development work and, and uh, getting to know people like David Bruns who designed the Lindsey Hopkins cars mm-hmm. and, and uh, I've gained a lot of knowledge from those kind of people and doing some of the stuff myself. So it's it's been really interesting to me.
6: You were never involved in the Purdue Grand Prix? Did I hear that no, right? No, no, I wasn't. Matter of fact, I've never
2: seen it. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it. it wow, I because really, I
6: guess they come up with some extraordinary
2: machines up there. Yeah, I really wanted to get up there this year. I understand they really do a nice job, and, and uh, but it just wasn't in the cards this year. I was. Uh, unfortunately committed to unfortunately committed to some other stuff out on the coast but um, I really look forward to seeing it one of these days I remember when I was at school that uh, that they had it and I wanted another guy and myself wanted to build a cart for it but uh, I just really didn't have the funds at the time it was either go to school or play and (laughs) I (laughs) wanted, wanted to get out so I could start rail
6: racing well it paid off
0: now again back in 1982 Pete Halsmer, who you heard there, the Colonial Bread Payless Eagle Chevrolet, finished in the 25th position. Okay, uh, Mike, in the last couple of minutes here, I'll do this just in case anybody that's listening wants to play along, okay? I'm going to name for you the sponsor of a car in the 1982 Indianapolis 500, the year that you made your first voyage out to IMS. You tell me the guy that drove it. You ready? I'm putting you on the spot, okay. I realize. Okay. Okay. We will begin with the Alex Foods, March Cosworth. Uh, Patro Carter. That is correct. How about the Longhorn Racing, Longhorn Cosworth, finished in the fifth position? Uh, Al,
5: Unser was, Al Unser was driving Longhorn then.
0: That is correct. How about the precursor to Ari Leyendijk, the Domino's Pizza, March Cosworth? Oh, Howdy Holmes, your favorite. That is correct. All right, Red Roof Ends. Uh, rook, rookie year for Bobby Rahal that year also correct Carta Blanca. March Cosworth finished in the oh, 13th position
5: my friend Hector Rabake
0: <laughs> that is also correct uh, how about this one the Freeman Gurney Eagle uh,
5: the, the aforementioned Michael Chandler son of the editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Times
0: you are correct the Interscope Racing Interscope Cosworth Oh, Danny Angais, the Batmobile. The Great American Spirit, March Cosworth. Uh, Jerry Sneva. Correct. How about the Circle Bar Truck Corral? Who doesn't like to uh, hang Avon, out in at the Circle Zone, Bar Chet Phillip. Truck Corral? Chet Phillip is indeed correct. You're on a roll here. I'm going to give you a couple more just to make it fun. The Schlitz Gusto. Uh, Jose Le Garza. Bingo, baby! Who doesn't like the Schlitz gusto? That would. Okay, how about the how about the battle that took place between that and the Stroh's March? That was
5: uh, the late Jim Hickman,
0: the, the late, rookie of the year. The late Jim Hickman is indeed. Correct. Mike, it's been a lot of fun tonight taking a look back at the 1982 Indianapolis 500 and the personalities that made up that race. Again, May 30th of 1982, Gordon Johncock was the winner, but as we heard, there were others that were involved in it. And again, our thoughts to Jovi Marcello, his family, the legacy of Gordon Smiley as well. Sam Fritz, Eddie Garrison helping out behind the scenes. For Mike Thompson, my name is Jake Query. Thank you so much for listening and making it possible for us to bring you this episode of Beyond the Bricks.